Thank you for that reading. Um, what an amazing passage it is. And uh, what is going on in it? Well, we are seeing the birth of the early church, the release of the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the power of God as it is newly possible. We are glimpsing the kingdom. And this is the last in a little sermon series on the kingdom of God. Well, as we see all of that happening, Peter has to explain it to the people around who are mystified by it. And so we get the first full explanation of who Jesus was and what his mission was and what we are called to do in response. And we see the impact of that on 3,000 people who become Christians as a response. So it's potent. And we have this amazing verse there in verse 38 where Peter says simply this, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for humoring me at the start and sharing your testimonies. Um, I thought it would be a really interesting thing to do as we look at this moment when the early church is born, 3,000 people come to faith, just to reflect for a moment on how it is that we came to faith if we are people who are believers. And um, our testimony, our story, is one of the most powerful things that we have in trying to share our faith with other people. So I once heard that it's really good to practice it, and I think there's some truth in that. The thing is, at the heart of our decisions to become Christians, at the heart of the passage that we read tonight, at the heart of um, the decisions of the 3,000, and at the heart of any future decisions that anyone here who might yet go on to make that decision, at the heart of that decision will be this question, and it is, who is Jesus? So tonight we're going to look at that. We're going to just look at two things. One, Jesus. Two, Peter. And that's it. Let's start with Jesus. Because we have to deal with this question at some point in our lives. Who is this person? And what do we make of him? So Peter zooms straight in on that in verse 22. And he says, look, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says to his contemporary audience, you've seen him. You've witnessed him. He was accredited to you with miracles and wonders and signs. Which is great for them because they were there. Is it more difficult for us, 2,000 years on? First of all, did he even exist? Well, there's an abundance of early and detailed Christian accounts of Jesus' life. More evidence there than there is for much of what we deem historical fact. But what even if we moved aside the Christian sources... There's a wealth of references to Jesus in non-Christian sources. Jewish and Roman historians and politicians reference him. Josephus, Pliny, Tacitus. To sum that up, Simon Gathercole, writing in The Guardian, put it beautifully like this. He said, These abundant historical references leave us with little reasonable doubt that Jesus lived and died. The more interesting question, which goes beyond history and objective fact is whether Jesus died and lived. 
I just really like that summing up. I think it's really useful if you're meeting someone who's in doubt or wondering to say, look, no doubt that he lived and died. The question is, did he die and live? That's the thing to grapple with. So Peter gets straight into that in this sermon. In verse 23, he tells us how Jesus was crucified. We know that as a fact. But the question is why? Why, if he was important, why have him die? And Peter reveals here it was part of God's plan, that it was done with God's foreknowledge. And in verse 38, when he tells us what we need to do as a response, we understand why. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, to free us from all the things in our life that have got in the way, that have made a wedge between us and God, the things that still hold us back. Jesus died to remove them from us, to atone for our sins, build a bridge between us and God. And God wasn't going to just leave him there in the tomb. In verses 24 and 32 and 33, Peter assures us of the resurrection. And the way it's put in verse 24, I think, is brilliant. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And in that, in the resurrection, Jesus breaks the power of death. He releases the Holy Spirit and he brings in the kingdom. So Peter's conclusion in verse 36 is clear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And that word Messiah is really powerful. It's from the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning anointed one or chosen one. In other words, the one that the whole Old Testament pointed to. The one that the whole kingdom plan hinges on. The one with the power to take away our sin, reconcile us to God. And you can tell it's powerful because right after Peter says that, you get the astonishing response of the audience there, the crowd. Because when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's a response. And the thing is, I think to best understand what what on earth God was doing with this kingdom plan is in the name that, one of the names given to Jesus, Emmanuel. It means God with us. Because God no longer wanted to be distant or remote, but present in our lives. So God himself breaks down the barriers between a holy God and fragile, flawed humankind. That is the whole kingdom plan, that we could walk in step with our God, as incredible as that sounds. And, you know, that's not actually suddenly new here at this moment in the New Testament. It was written all the way through the Old Testament. It's there in the prophecies that Peter references um, from Joel, from the Psalms of David. But it's there in verses like Micah 6, verse 8, when God writes, And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And I love that phrase. Walk humbly with your God. Like that's the real plan for our lives. That's the vision. It's there in that picture that's right at the very start of the Bible in Genesis. 
of God walking through the garden with Adam and Eve of an evening. Time with God, closeness, intimacy, walking together. And that isn't just true for non-Christians, actually. It's not just a message for non-Christians, because so many of us, even though we are Christians and we've encountered Jesus and we've known his power in our lives, and we're saved, but we're not always really walking this life humbly with our God. We're busy or we're preoccupied or we're doing other things and we're trying to just squeeze him into a little part of our lives, but actually the kingdom plan was that we could walk this life with our God. Because God knows, in this broken world, it is a hard thing walking this life on our own. Have you noticed there's been a couple of pop songs just lately with the theme of I'm only human. I'm only human after all. I'm only human, don't put the blame on me. I'm only human. And you know there's some truth in that. We are only human. And God knows that that's just not enough. And that's why God himself had to give us the kingdom rescue plan. That's why this life walked with God is so much more than this life walked on our own. Talking of, is it all just human? Is there a God behind it? I just love, and I wanted to reference this little bit in Acts, a couple of pages on in your pew Bible. It's Acts 5, verses 29 to 39. There's this lovely bit where as the early church is getting going, um, it causes trouble. And the authorities are very quick to discern that there, there will be trouble from this new movement, the way. And they want to shut it down. In fact, really, they want to kill Peter and John and the other apostles and shut it down that way. But they're not quite sure what they should do about it. First of all, they try and say to Peter, stop preaching. That's the first thing. Stop the preaching. Stop the word of God. And Peter's response to that is this, and uh, you can see it on the screen as well. We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In other words, Peter says, no, not going to stop. And while I'm explaining that, I'll just drop in a quick summary of the gospel ready for you. So when they heard this, they're furious and they want to put him to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, respected, wise, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addresses the Sanhedrin and he says this, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed. Came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared too in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed. All his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. I love that. 
If it's human origin, don't need to do anything because it's just going to die out anyway like all the other times. Don't worry about it. And if it's God, there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop it. God said, I will build my church. You know, sometimes in the West, modern day Britain, we don't have a sense of that. But the last estimate, there were over 2 billion Christians in the world. That's like more than a quarter of the whole world's population. And that number's growing. So sometimes when we don't see that in our little spaces, in our little churches, we need to realize we're part of a global family and it's growing. And it's been growing and growing and growing. Because it's not of human origin. It's from God. And therefore, it's unstoppable. And because it's not just human, that's where its power lies. And you see that really beautifully in the person of Peter. So I just want us to talk a little bit about Peter. Um, because there is an ordinary human fueled by the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit. Um, in Acts 4 verse 13, it says this, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I think that's an encouragement for all of us because we're all really ordinary men and women. The difference is the being with Jesus. And you know, in this passage that we read tonight, um, in that lovely bit where Peter went and explained what um, David was talking about in the Psalms, there's that bit in verse 34 and 35 where Peter unpicks David writing, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There's a really lovely link back that that is the passage that Jesus challenged the Jewish authorities in the temple with. And you see that in Mark 12, 35 and 37, Matthew 22, 41 and 46, Luke 20, 41 and 44, three times historically recorded, by the way. Um, so Jesus challenges the Jewish authorities with that and says, uh, what is David talking about? And they don't know and they can't answer. And you know what? Here, just a few pages on, what the elite couldn't fathom, Peter, the unschooled ordinary man, can explain. And the audience for this amazing unpicking and unraveling of this Old Testament mystery is the ordinary people of the day. You see, the mysteries of the kingdom are given to the people, the ordinary people. And hasn't it always been like that? When you think that the first people to hear about the birth of Jesus Christ were the shepherds who were despised in the culture. Or that the first person to truly glimpse what was meant by Jesus' death on the cross and life after death was a criminal hanging on the cross with Jesus. Because actually, isn't it a topsy-turvy kingdom, this kingdom of God? where the keys to the kingdom come through the death of a carpenter, the son of God. Where the kingdom's great persecutor, Paul, will become its greatest evangelist. Where the first explanation of that kingdom that we read here tonight comes from an illiterate fisherman who only weeks before, by the way, had denied even knowing that Jesus existed when put under pressure. And the amazing thing I think about 
Peter's mistake when he denies Jesus after Jesus' arrest is that he claims not to know Jesus. But the truth is the absolute opposite. He knew Jesus. How he knew Jesus. He'd spent three years on the road with Jesus. Peter had been through all sorts of ups and downs with Jesus. You can read about them in the Gospels. Peter's there always sort of ready to shoot off his mouth before he really thinks. But he knew Jesus. You know, Matthew 16, verses 15 and 16, when Jesus says, Who do they say I am? Who's everyone saying I am? They give the answers. And then he turns to the disciples and says, And what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter's there with the answer, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yes, Peter knew Jesus. His main qualification His only qualification for delivering this, the key explanation at this foundational moment of the church, is that he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus, and the rest is just the Holy Spirit. And if we are willing to be, if we want to be used in the kingdom, it starts for us too with time spent with Jesus time with Jesus and an openness to the Holy Spirit's guiding and prompting and really nothing else. We should seek opportunities to explain our faith like Peter does. If we want to share it, if we want to explain it, then first we just need to seek time with an understanding of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And when that's evident in our lives and in our church... Things will happen that mean people can't help but say, what is going on here? Can you explain? Just like it happened here at the start of Acts. We don't need to wait to feel ready to work for the kingdom. We're told to go in our weakness and let God do the rest. It doesn't matter how young or old you are, how experienced or inexperienced. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from because Jesus dealt with all of that in the past on the cross. You know, Peter didn't wait for voice coaching. He didn't do some public speaking course. He just got up and got going. As we're told in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, my grace is all you need, for my power is greatest when you are weak. In fact, the less of us and the more of God there is, the better in our witness, in our daily lives, in our churches. The less there is of us, the more it is God, the better. Because after all, that is the kingdom plan. That was what it was all about. I want there to be a little bit of time and space for us to reflect tonight. I don't want to tell you how you should respond. I just want us to make a little bit of space so that you can respond in any way that you want. Responding to the offer from God to be with us, more real, more present, more evident in our lives than ever before. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us.
I wonder what we'll do with that.